Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So guys, thank you so much for for everything, all the comments, all the downloads uh, over the last little while. I know I've been trying to put out one or, or two podcasts a week since we've kind of got into semi-lockdown. Um, so hopefully everyone is staying safe. Everyone is keeping sane with what is going on. Um, so this week I've been trying to get this person on for quite a long time. Uh, and I'm very lucky to have him on, uh, given the circumstances. Uh, so this week I have Joe O'Brien, aka Head First Zero, on Instagram. So Joe is the host of the Head First podcast. He's a trainee health psychologist, educator, researcher, and writer. He is working with Spectrum Mental Health, uh, but he has a special interest in behavior change and the relationship between physical and mental health. And I think now more than ever, we need to look after our both our physical health and our mental health. So that's why I've been very fortunate to have Joe on. So thank you so much for coming on, Joe. No worries at all. Yeah, it has been a while, you're right. Um, but luckily, this uh, lockdown situation has, has freed up some time and we're getting the chance to hopefully record some really valuable. And how are you holding up in the whole thing? Yeah, it's not too bad. Um, I've, I guess I, I'm someone who always sees the silver lining in things, so I'm trying to find the positives from it. Um, it's given me the opportunity to do thing, two more things like this, I guess. The working from home has given me some flexibility and stuff like that. So I'm trying to do as much... Um, of this kind of thing and putting out valuable information um, you know as best I can so um, although it's difficult and a lot of people are finding it difficult myself included in different respects uh, it's it's not so bad it's, it, uh, there's definitely some silver linings that I've found for, for myself personally that's good that's good um, so I think like Joe puts out incredible content and even though he doesn't technically maybe post as often as a lot of other people up on social media the, the posts are very to the point and they definitely latch on to what our beliefs are, what we're possibly thinking. And that's my perception of it um, from reading his posts. Um, but one that does definitely resonate with me a lot is the one, the ob- obesity is not the result of a lack of willpower. And I think willpower and obesity are two big things that are kind of topical at the minute. Um, can you expand on that post a little bit more, Joe? Yeah, um, I think it's it's a, a common thing for people to think that that obesity can maybe you know it, it might be a, a difficult concept to grasp for a lot of people. There's there's so many factors we need to consider when people are struggling with their weight. Um, it's a bit of a reductionist type view to think that someone who has these difficulties with their weight, it, it, they just need to eat less or they just need to move more, and that it's this really simple equation. Um, I think there's this also kind of misinformed idea that someone who is uh, obese um, has no willpower, as if willpower is the sole dictator of someone's food choices, which which it isn't. So I think I, I can understand why people might feel like um, maybe if you don't have the same difficulties as someone who struggles with their weight has, you might not see the reason why obesity is more than just uh, willpower. But if you look at the kind of obesity numbers over the last couple of decades let's say it's it's kind of steadily increasing it's quite linear and for the kind of willpower theory to be true that would mean that uh, people's willpower has been reducing over the past couple of decades but it hasn't because if people's willpower and their motivation has been decreasing over all that time it would have expanded to different areas it would have dif- decreased in all areas like your motivation to go to the gym or to do your job or to look after your kind of life responsibilities and that doesn't really make sense because willpower and motivation is necessary across the board of our lives um, and that hasn't changed 
So to suggest that it's changed just in relation to food is, is from my view anyway, quite simply just incorrect. Um, there's no evidence to suggest that the widespread increase in obesity rates are a result of willpower or motivation. Um, so I think instead, I'd say maybe it's more so important to consider things like the food environment and how that shapes behavior. Um, we live in a world now where there's this like, I guess the most accessible things are high calorie, no uh, low nutrient. So those options are kind of seen as easier or more convenient and, and they're often cheaper or on sale or there's offers to promote those things. And because we're surrounded by those things, of course, we're going to ad adapt to our environment. We're actually quite good at that. So, you know, what we surround ourselves with does dictate to some extent how we behave around food and our eating behaviors. Because like there aren't companies pumping like billions into the advertising of like carrots and broccoli and kale, but there are people pumping billions into sugary drinks and fast food. So that's one other factor that we need to consider. The one I guess that I'm most interested in is psychology. So for example, struggling with your mental health is a big risk risk factor for um, for obesity and for struggling with your, your eating behavior. Traumatic experiences is another one. Um, stress and emotions, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. Those things can contribute towards that kind of behavior. So all these there are all these kind of psychological factors that impact what we choose at any given time, and it's not strictly related to food, um, but it obviously impacts food. And then there's the kind of wider social factors like social inequality, your friend groups, uh, where you live. So I think it's, when we consider the kind of gravity of, of all the things that predict behavior, it's really reductionist to think that obesity is just this willpower or just this this motivation thing. Um, it, because to me, it's, it's absolutely not. It's a lot bigger than that. And do you think that the fitness industry as a whole is doing enough to move away from the whole move more, eat less mentality that a lot of people are potentially painted with or kind of bombarded with in the media? Do you think the fitness industry as a whole is kind of doing enough? Um, it's an interesting one because, like, realistically, if someone consumes less, like we know the kind of calorie equation, if you eat less calories than you, than you use, you're going to lose body fat. Um, and if you move more, you're more likely to do that. But I think where maybe the fitness industry is lacking is understanding why, understanding the underlying factors as to why people find it difficult to eat less or why people find it difficult to move more. Like, if they can overcome the barriers that are, are creating those difficulties for them, then yes, they will likely consume less calories and consume less food and move more. But maybe it's, it's a lack of understanding about the underlying factors behind why it's difficult for some people. And those factors can be so diverse and so different depending on the individual. Um, so I think I, I, maybe it's, it's wrong to suggest that they're not doing enough because it's right to think that uh, we need to maybe consume less food overall and we need to, to move more. But it's a matter of understanding why that is difficult is, is kind of the, the bridge that I want to gap. Yeah, I think from from experience and doing a little bit of research on it and from listening to a few bits and bobs on kind of why people struggle with the whole eat a little bit less kind of movement is potentially stemming from our parents, our grandparents and so on. Because when you, you know yourself, Joe, when you were growing up that you were put a plate, your, a plate of food was put in front of you and you weren't necessarily allowed to leave until the food was gone from the plate. And that's potentially stemmed into what we are, what the stage we are at now for some people. And that's not brushing everyone with the same stroke, but that is 
potentially leading into why some people do struggle with the whole smaller portion side of things potentially kind of eating a little bit less side of things i don't know i i could be speaking out of turn here i'm not i'm not an expert but um i could be wrong no, i think i think it's i think it's one factor like, yeah like it's, that's that might for me might fall into like the social factors or maybe your previous habits or your previous beliefs so those things do matter like your previous experiences certainly matter in predicting um your you know future behavior if your habits are, are strong or let's say for example years ago um you lived in like a, a poor family or there was a lot of let's say you had a lot of brothers and sisters and you were in a poor family and there was kind of struggle to to find food like there was kind of um let's say your family didn't earn an awful lot and there was very limited food on your plate you would do as much as you can to eat as much as you can because that's safety and you need that to survive but then as you grow older and there's more food that's accessible and it's cheaper it, it might make sense for that person to then um, maybe overeat or, or eat more than, than their needs because they're used to maybe eating or, or struggling to, to find food and that food is safety for them and it's it's to nourish themselves in, in the short term in a place that was quite difficult so you're right in saying that that, that a specific example could certainly impact someone's future eating behavior but there are loads of examples yeah. like that and i think that i think the the point that i want to get across is that the gravity is is so big in this like there's there's so many reasons why people might eat a certain way or behave a certain way and it's too reductionist to say uh, eat less move more just as a blanket kind of statement to everybody and and to think that it is simple Okay, no, I, I I like the the whole thing about that. It is too reductionist, and and I I one hundred percent agree on that. There's there's definitely so many different things, and everyone is so different in whatever we do. Everyone has is different wires across different ways. So I I one hundred percent agree with that. One of the things that's kind of happening at the minute is stress is a massive thing. Stress is always around us, from people working from crazy hours. Uh, family trying to balance family life social life all that kind of stuff but stress and financial worry and job security is a big thing at the minute um it's a massive issue in these days and some people wear it as a badge of honor almost that they become more stressed or they are more stressed and they have these deadlines they're trying to be busier than their friends or whatever it is it's almost like a excuse the pun but is it like a billy big balls uh competition when people are on a night out or whatever it may be um in relation to stress, does it have an impact on our eating behavior uh, for either a good way or a kind of so-called better way, if you know what I mean? Yeah, um, I think stress is important to consider because stress is normal and everyone experiences it. But there's a point where stress can be problematic for some people. Um, I know, and I guess you probably maybe see this more than I do in terms of the clients that present in front of you. A lot of people who struggle with their food or their eating behavior, um, specifically related to weight, will often identify with things like stress eating, or I eat when I'm in this type of mood. So yeah, absolutely stress. Like it probably doesn't take me to, to tell people that stress can impact your eating behavior. Um, so I think it's natural for people to, to know that the food is comforting, that it's entirely normal to seek out food as a comfort or like a safety net. And of course, if it's your only way to manage stress, then it could potentially be a problem. That then it might kind of tie over into the, the problematic side. I think with stress, um, it can impact our eating behavior in a couple of ways. But one of the things that I think um, maybe people might resonate with more, um, and I, I feel like maybe it's more important for them to know about, is the impact 
that high stress levels can have on your brain and therefore your decision making. So if you're in like a heightened emotional state, if you're like in an incredibly stressed state or anxious state, it impacts your prefrontal cortex. So that's an area of the brain that's associated with uh, self-regulation and impulse control. So look, it does a lot of things, but there are two of the things that it does. Therefore, when people are kind of stressed or anxious um, at any time, whether it's at work, after work, um, or even possibly just feeling other really strong emotions, um, they might be kind of more likely to revert to those kind of bad habits, I guess, or, or if they had previous bad habits, or they may be more likely to binge eat maybe or overeat because of that kind of self-regulation and impulse control thing. Um, they'll be more likely to look towards the high-calorie, low-nutrient foods, um, which is understandable, again, because um, you know they're more palatable, they're um, more rewarding. And then even aside from that, the stress can potentially impact our brain signals. So things that tell us when we're full and when we're hungry, um, high stress levels can impact our kind of brain receiving those messages accurately. And I think anyone can kind of identify with that because you know that, like even I know myself, when I'm stressed, I will likely turn to food um, or, you know, obviously I have, I have other coping strategies, thankfully. Um, but for someone whose only coping strategy is to turn to food, then it might be problematic because it might have an impact on your weight or your overall health. Um, and I guess everyone resonates with that idea of stress eating or maybe emotional eating, but maybe doesn't understand why that it, why it happens. So I guess that's the reason um, that I believe that we're missing some something in these nutrition interventions because we need to kind of recognize that psychological interventions are important. Like psychological factors are important for our eating behavior. And it's important to recognize and, and realize that the psychological factors do impact our eating behavior because in order to address the actual behavior itself, it's important to, to consider the psychological factors too. I think that's I think that's a, a great answer, a very thorough um, answer on, on that side of things. I know for myself, when I get stressed, I'm the opposite. I tend not to eat when I am stressed. Um, I'm kind of one of those that just kind of when it's particularly around kind of like exam time and stuff like that if I'm completely and utterly stressed I tend not to eat and tend to lose a little bit of weight during that time while others okay. while others are the other way when they're kind of like stressed they're kind of reaching for things and trying to get a little bit of food just to try and get a little bit of nutrients into them so it's interesting that there's two different side of things if you know what I mean it's it's very funny actually because um, the reason I got into health psychology or one of the reasons I got into psychology in the first place was when I was younger um I used to suffer really badly with um, nerves before big matches. Um, I played rugby when I was a teenager and played football, played um, GAA. And any big matches, any kind of finals or anything, um, I would I would be so nervous and so kind of, I guess, anxious that I wouldn't be able to eat anything. And if I did, I would get sick. So at that point in my life, my coping strategy for that was avoiding food too. Um, and I guess just from your example alone, it's very evident that different people have different coping strategies so for some people their coping strategy might be food but other people it might be you know meeting their friends or going to the gym and again you can kind of i guess you can have a, a problematic relationship with any of those things like for some people they might buy themselves something nice on the internet when they they feel down as like a pick meal but then if they spend half their salary on it then that might become a problem similar with things like drugs for example or having a, a, a drink with dinner you have one drink with dinner and, and you think that maybe relaxes you but for somebody else it's like you know five pints or six pints and, and 
suddenly it becomes a problem, I guess. And it's similar with food in that some people, you know, you might have a bar of chocolate or you might have like, I don't know, a can of Coke or whatever, and it might give you that pick you, pick me up that you need. Um, but then it can, I guess, develop to the extent where it's problematic. So I think it's important to realize that turning to food for comfort is, is fine if it's not your only coping strategy and it's not having an impact on your mental health or it's not having an impact on your life. Yeah, I think I, I, I like that part that as long as it's not because I think we do live in a world of extremes. Like it seems to be that kind of the simple things are people know what to do, but they tend not to do them. And we yeah. like moderation is difficult, but extremes are so easy to go into. So I think that's as, as you've alluded to with kind of the alcohol, drugs, all that kind of stuff. Exercise is also one of those. I know people that kind of when they get completely stressed, and they they end up going to the gym when potentially they need to kind of almost kind of take a step back and listen to their body um and i was one of those that kind of didn't really listen to their body and then ended up getting ill probably about three years ago so um for the background if you guys haven't been listening to this about three years ago it's actually three years tomorrow it's weird um i ended up getting two blood clots and flew it on my lungs completely out of the blue literally wasn't looking after myself um was trying to do a little bit of training wasn't looking after myself was in a career i did not enjoy at all and literally my body just has your body has a funny way of, re, of reacting to certain state to stress and different things and my body just com- yeah. completely shut down we never got a real answer to it but i do put it down to the body just couldn't cope with what was going on um well yeah so like that's a that's a dramatic example but but it's but it's i guess it's an example of how like mental and physical health interact like the importance of, of health psychology because your your physical or your mental well-being really does play out in your body and your physical health because one like things like stress like we just talked about stress and um, emotions and like like struggling to manage for example all those things might do something like suppress your immune system for other people they might have like ibs symptoms for other people like myself you might get physically sick if you're stressed there are all these different physical symptoms and often it's the case that when we have something going on in our minds whether it's like a significant mental health issue or just like regular day-to-day stress it often plays out in our physical health and to, to think that the mind and body are separate is just completely off the wall because they're so so connected and you're an example of that i'm an example of that and i'm sure people listening will, will certainly have examples of that too yeah big time i think it, it is just finding out that that balance that works for you and not to kind of use an avenue to kind of deal with it and you're you are going to have to deal with that kind of stress in some way but just try to kind of balance it out um the the word that's kind of going around at the minute is motivation and motivation is always one of these buzzwords that is out there in the industry and everything that we do but motivation seems to be out there at the minute regarding, oh, I'm not motivated to train, I'm not mo- motivated to do X, Y, and Z. And a lot of people do speak about it. And there's there's different there's different opinions on it that it's not motivation, it's dedication, that it is just about getting things done or X, Y, and Z. But can we really rely on motivation for long-term behavior change? And this is one of those posts that really kind of got me thinking when you put this up a little while ago. Can you kind of explain on that a little bit more, Joe? yeah it's it's one of my it's one of my favorite personal ones um it it 
it's funny because the, the posts that I put up sometimes I love and then doesn't get the same response. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but, but glad to hear that it, it, it resonated with somebody. Um, yeah, with motivation, it's a really interesting one. So motivation is just one of like a host of factors that's important when we consider behavior change. So of course, it's, it's absolutely necessary. I'm not saying it's not important because it is. Because unless somebody wants to change, they're not going to really bother. If you kind of tell someone they need to change and they don't believe they need to change, they're not going to try and alter their behavior. So it's important to be motivated. It's important that the person, the individual, on some level wants to change, but it's only one of so many different factors. So I, I think I used this uh, ladder analogy when I was talking about motivation in, in that post. So I think for people who are listening, it might be helpful to understand that if you imagine you're climbing a ladder and to get to the top, um, you need all the steps on the ladder. So if you think of motivation as a single step on the ladder, if we have motivation, we have one step. But one step isn't going to get us to the top. It's not going to get us to climb the ladder, and it's not going to get us to behavior change. And um, We need the other steps too. For, so, for some people, they might need different steps. It could be, for example, like you mentioned earlier, their past habits or their past experiences that they're having trouble with. It could be their beliefs around their diet or their beliefs around nutrition. It could be their mental health that they need to address in order to kind of climb the ladder. It could be social environment. It could be their financial position or their socioeconomic status. And all these different steps for different people are necessary to get all the way to the top. And by having all those steps um, in one place, you can get to the top of the ladder. And when you get to the top of the ladder, that means that you have achieved behavior change. And the more steps that are in place, the easier it is to get to the top. So I guess what I want people to understand really about motivation is that it's only it's only one piece. It's only one part of climbing the ladder. And if we solely rely on that, our outcomes are gonna fluctuate just like our motivation does. So you probably know for yourself, I know for myself day to day, my motivation fluctuates. Some day I wake, some days I wake up, I really want to train, I really want to go for a run, I really want to go for a cycle, um, I really want to prep my meals or, or cook good food. Other days I'm like, I need to sleep in, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. And that's fine. But if we solely rely on our motivation to dictate what we do, our motivation goes up and down. Therefore, our results are going to go up and down, our behaviors are going to go up and down. So if we're only relying on motivation, which changes day to day, even hour to hour, um, your, your results are going to fluctuate just like motivation does. So we can't solely rely on motivation. Um, I think what I hear an awful lot is that somebody might come to me and they might say, uh, you know, I want to make X, Y, and Z changes. I want to uh, exercise more and I want to um, eat these, type of, these types of foods more often and I want to cut down on this. And you might ask them, you know, what's different about this than maybe previous times that you've attempted to do this as well. And they say, oh, I'm really motivated this time. And to me, only being motivated isn't enough. It's a matter of looking beyond motivation. As, like Because if we just roll with the motivation and say, okay, that's fine, that's enough reason. If we look beyond the motivation, we might find that there are other steps in the ladder that are, that are going to make it easier for them to get to the top. Because like I said, if we have more of those steps in place, if we address more of the factors that are going on, that are the barriers for that person, then they're more likely to get to the top. It's interesting that you said there about when you are like, for instance, for like if say if a new client is kind of or a, a client wants to kind of sign up with myself, in regards to kind of one of the questions on my questionnaire is out of like out of ten, how motivated are you to to kind of 
get to your goal or whatever whatever they're trying to do with myself and more often than not it's kind of like on the seven or eight out of ten and you're kind of like where's the other 20 percent, or what is the other 20 percent, or what like as you said what has changed from the previous time that you've potentially worked with someone or what's changed from in your mind from the previous diets or the previous groups of diets or products or something like that, that you may have tried previously um compared to where you are now so it is interesting that you kind of mention that because I know motivation does go up and down as you said like there, there was days after like we were talking off air there was like the Saturday and the Sunday after the last Taoiseach's announcement I didn't want to do anything but I made sure that in order for my head to be okay and to be functioning I turned off social media and I made sure to get out for like 30 minute an hour walk every day and I knew that that was going to stand me stand me in good stead and put me in a better headspace and put better physical space going going down the line um, yeah. and I think sometimes we just have to almost put one foot in front of the other in order to kind of continuously go like it'd be even half a foot kind of going forward still means you're moving forward and I think a lot of people now from experience are almost they don't the routine is all over the place and our both of our routines are over the place um yeah, yeah everyone's yeah. everyone's is all, like there's not one person that's not going to be affected by this and it's so important that we you make a routine or make a plan for as much as possible i'm not saying you need to be like an army drill sergeant saying eight o'clock or oh eight hundred oh nine hundred whatever but if you say I'm going to achieve these two or three tasks, whether it be work or go to the gym, get out for a walk, call a friend or whatever like that, that will put you in a better headspace. That will put you towards a better mood, if you know what I mean. Um, I, I think it's really interesting, the example, the exact example you mentioned. So like just after the, the speech about coronavirus and the kind of measures that were being taken, maybe cause that kind of maybe stress or anxiety in the short term and then you decide to kind of cut down your social media use and, and maybe um, work then in a better place to do the things that you wanted to do i think that is like a short-term example of um exactly why it's important to address more than than motivation because if you take that stress and anxiety that some people might face every day that's let's say someone who has generalized anxiety and that feels maybe generally anxious day to day for them they might be really motivated on Monday and they might go and, and want to make all these changes but then unless you address more than the motivation aka the anxiety and the stress that they feel that anxiety and stress is going to pop up at different points and that's going to impact their level of motivation and their level of what they want to do and it might change their kind of decision making in the short term and again another reason to consider the kind of psychological factors when we talk about behavior change is like you said you don't want to do those things when you're when you're in a bad place emotionally but if, if that emotion is going on longer term than for example just the, the coronavirus thing or if you're struggling with your your mental health your stress your anxiety over the longer term then that's definitely something that's important to address even if the thing you're addressing is your nutrition because that's an underlying factor that's going to predict your behavior so your example was really perfect in that that's a really short example of why someone's motivations might change but for those people who struggle with stress and anxiety over the longer term, it's a perfect reason why you maybe might need to address the psychological factors when you're tackling something like nutrition. Yeah, I, I love that because I think a lot of people, like there's an awful lot more in the media, a lot more out there at the minute on social media as well regarding 
it's okay not to be okay but still it's not spoken about enough some people are still kind of holding on to it and we, a lot of people are doing amazing work like yourself and other people as well are doing amazing work to try and almost encourage people to talk about things but I think if you if you can control your environment to a small to an extent it will definitely hold you in kind of the shorter term but as joe has said like if you are if you are struggling in the longer term please go and talk to a, a professional and, and kind of make sure you're you're looking after yourself because if you're not looking after yourself you can't really look after anyone else if you know what i mean um, absolutely if, if you're I, I think as well if you're not looking after your mind um it will have an impact on your physical health and your ability to maybe make those changes 100 percent, and i think that leads into the next question uh, in relation to kind of like the setbacks side of things that some people could be coming could be facing kind of coming up in the next little while either financial or jobs or family or housing or whatever it may be and managing setbacks is vital in making behavior change have you got any tips on how to kind of prepare for so-called failure um yeah, I think I think it's a it's a cool question because it's one that people definitely definitely do not do, um, and they definitely don't do enough of. I think people sometimes say to me that it's maybe pessimistic or negative to kind of prepare to fail, like expect to fail. But I really really believe that we should prepare to fail, because one of the predictors, and specifically I guess my area is the area of kind of nutritional behavior change, um, and that includes like weight loss. But there's one of the predictors of weight loss maintenance is how well people react to these setbacks. So I think anyone who's got anywhere in life, not just in health-related behavior change, will tell you that there's there was bumps along the way and there was these little failures. And I think it absolutely should be expected. I think it's really unrealistic to think that any type of significant change or long-term change is gonna be linear. So preparing to fail, I guess in my book, it's incredibly important. I would say, in terms of maybe tips, um, acceptance that it's going to happen is, is a start, um, and not being too hard on yourself. I think maybe loads of people kick themselves while they're down. I guess you probably see this if, if a client comes back to you and, and maybe they've they've thought they've failed because they've, they've gone outside of their plan or they've yeah. done something that they didn't want to do, and that person might feel like ashamed or embarrassed that they've maybe failed again or or that they continue to have difficulties and that can be really really hard for people and that for a lot of people is the time when they give up and not having that self-compassion during that time can really make you feel worse and I guess fuel that cycle of wanting to change being really rigid and then letting yourself down again and again it kind of feeds into that cycle um so preparing for it and being self-compassion sorry self-compassionate and then the second thing maybe is is to learn from it um, there's that quote that it's only a failure if you don't learn something from it and I really believe that because I think we learn so much about ourselves and our own behaviours in those difficult places I think it's important for any clients that you're working with to be comfortable enough to talk about the failures without feeling judged because you learn so much from those from those sessions anyway in my experience um, and then addressing the maybe the, the cognitive distortions as well is an important one I see it specifically with people who are trying to make healthy changes that it might seem like the worst thing in the world the worst thing that could have happened is if they had elapsed during that kind of transition period when they're trying to make new habits and they're trying to make changes so 
maybe addressing some of those beliefs and some of those cognitive distortions. And then the last thing I would say is reflection. So look at what you have done, how hard you have worked up to that point, point, and then finding comfort in it. It's so, so easy to think that everything's gone out the window. Again, the idea that it's the worst thing ever if something bad happens. It's really easy to think that everything's gone out the window when just this one lapse happens. But it's unlikely when you reflect on it in maybe a, a more kind of broader scheme or like a wider view, that it's unlikely that that one thing actually outweighs some of the significant changes you've already been able to make. Again, I think what comes up for people here is, again, largely psychological because perceived failures can kind of elicit those emotions and feelings, um, the same emotions and feelings that result us in um, making these kind of negative choices or, or the choices that we don't want to live by, the choices that are kind of against our values. Um, so I guess, yeah, addressing those psychological factors again is, is quite important because we might think that like failures don't tie into psychology, but the way failures or lapses make you feel can impact your behavior. Therefore, you know, there's a, a pretty significant link there. I, I love that. I, I was literally writing down like a lunatic there. So that's why I went silent as well. Um, no, I love that because I'm I'm big advocate of uh, progress isn't linear. And you do learn more from kind of your, like, you do learn more from your, like, the setbacks or whatever it may be. I know from potentially when I was doing like a photo shoot or getting really lean for that. And there was some of the days that I didn't want to do it or I overate one of the, those days, I know back then that I was potentially uh, very hard on myself for that. But I know, I've, I know that myself, that if I went to do that again, I know how to work around that and how to change the mindset towards that. Um, so that, that, that was, yeah, those tips are definitely getting, getting robbed. Um, <laughs> um, there's one analogy that I love using is the halt analogy. Um, it's an incredible analogy and I've, I've spoken about it numerous times on the podcast and I spoke about it recently with uh, Emma Story Gordon or ESG Fitness about the Halt analogy. Can you expand on this a little bit in relation to how it relates to weight loss? Um, because it's, yeah. an, it's an incredible analogy. So, um, yeah, again, like, I guess I'm a huge advocate for managing your emotions and understanding your emotions because there are certain emotional states where I guess we're more at risk if you will so the analogy was was actually developed for addiction so it's more so used in in drug addiction and alcohol um, use but it, the more we kind of know about psychology it actually applies to numerous areas of psychology and one is in relation to eating so halt is h-a-l-t hungry angry lonely tired and sometimes you can swap in and out of you know, what they are, I like to throw in anxious instead of angry because I think a lot of people identify with that. Um, but I think, for example, a lot of people will ask themselves, why do I eat so much at night? And if you think about the state that you're in at night, you're likely going to be tired. Potentially, you're going to be lonely depending on who you live with and where you live. Um, you could be anxious or stressed in relation to what happened that day. And you could be hungry because you might not have eaten in a while. So people ask themselves, why have, I, why have I eaten so much at night? But when you look at the emotional states that maybe predict why you might be at risk of, of overeating or, or eating, for example, like I said, those high calorie, low nutrient foods, um, at night, you're, you're all of the above. You're hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Um, so I think 
one thing in relation to to halt, I guess sorry just to go back halt is the emotional states they're going to predict um, the likelihood for like lapses so lapses in in terms of addiction where it was originally developed would be like when you're most likely to kind of go back to your old habits and I think that's applicable to food too is that if you're making behavior change or you're trying to um, lose weight for example um, it's really important to maybe recognize those emotional states uh, in relation to yourself because they are predictors of potentially when you, you could lapse so one thing that can be helpful in this scenario is being able to recognize your emotional state in the mo- in the moment. I think men particularly are really, really bad at recognizing their emotional states. They're really bad at putting words on how they feel. Um, and I think that's a really significant problem for men specifically. Um, we see it a lot in men who kind of present to therapy that they're quite um, emotionally illiterate, would I say. <laughs> they, they can't really describe how they're feeling or, or what that means for them. Um, so I think that's important again when we're addressing the behaviour change stuff but anyway um, so identifying it is kind of step one and rather than uh, I guess allowing it to, to fuel your decision making and your behaviour without having any awareness of it um, it's important to kind of be able to label it and be able to know exactly how you feel in the moment and what what impact that might have on you one of the ways people practice that is being more mindful so maybe practicing mindfulness but just being more mindful of your emotional states and understanding how it impacts you so i'm likely to overeat if i'm stressed i feel stressed therefore what can i do about it um in addition to that uh, yeah managing those emotions in different ways like i said earlier it's important to have more than one coping strategy if you only have one coping strategy and it's food you might end up uh you know, having that maybe problematic relationship where you have this dependency on food to make you feel better. Um, and another way of, of, of identifying it is reflection. Again, we spoke about how important it is to learn from when you might have a bump in the road or might have a lapse. Maybe looking at what emotional state you're in beforehand might be important or trying to figure out what is the underlying drive driver of that behavior. I guess that as a like, trainee psychologist, that is what I'm looking to find for people who are trying to make these behavior changes. What is the thing that's driving the behavior? And I think often we look at a very surface level. We see, um, you know, what you eat, and, and and rather than looking at what happened that day that might have predicted what you ate, or what happened that day that made you want to not go to the gym, or made you um, want to eat this as opposed to that. Um, so, from from my perspective, anyway, again, I'm probably biased because I'm coming from a psychological background, but to me an awful lot of these lapses have psychological components to them. I think it's really, really important to for, for anyone, I guess, who's, who wants to make those behaviour changes to recognise how important psychology can be in those. I, I love the way you've kind of latched on to probably when most people would kind of struggle with the kind of the eating, which would be the late at night when they've kind of potentially had not a great day at work or they potentially had a not a great day kind of I could have argued with uh, their partner whoever it may be or just their boss was being an ass or whatever it may be so I, th- I do think that people need to be a little bit more conscious and yeah. I think some people can str- as you said men are not great at ad- I putting words on feelings uh, emotionally illiterate <laughs> was a polite term I think he chose to use there um, but we, we're not great um, but it is one of like the the, the whole system is, is incredible for that but like I like one tool that I try to use with clients is that if, if I know like 
a lot of clients want to kind of eat a little bit more in the evenings, but a lot of people don't really want to eat breakfast. So if I know that they can have a little bit more food, if they know they can have a little bit more food in the evenings and not having breakfast and still kind of come in with their weekly or daily calorie allowance, well, then it works for them. But that also doesn't give them the allowance to potentially eat three million chocolate bars, which is a bit of an exaggeration. Um, you would be very ill if you ate three million chocolate bars. But <laughs> but I encourage my clients, like if they if they if they know that they are going to be that they want they like most some people don't like breakfast like Kellogg's paid for that study that we have to have breakfast and like that's how biased the, the research was but a lot of us fell into it like that was one of the things that we we were brought up as kids like you have to have breakfast it will set you up for the rest of the day but you don't necessarily have breakfast a lot of my clients don't start to eat until like 11 o'clock in the morning they have a coffee at like 8 o'clock but they don't really eat until 11 o'clock so they kind of do an almost an intermittent fasting some of them and that isn't my that isn't my philosophy at all for myself but if that works for that person then it's important that 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 that, that they can latch on to that idea so I, I do like the whole analogy works so well I think yeah it's, it's, it's an interesting one as well because um, hunger obviously is, is number one so when people are getting late into the night they're thinking um, I guess some people are thinking um, I'm able to have more at night because I've you know I have my allowance or whatever I'm able to, to eat more but if if they are in a hungry state they might despite having that leeway still go overboard yeah. so again like something to consider for, for people listening is that if you're going into your night um, knowing you have the kind of window of, or, or that you're quite flexible but still being really really hungry or maybe excessively hungry um, an important thing to consider is that you're more liable to overeat or kind of overconsume whatever it is you're you're going to eat simply by being in that state before you before you engage in your eating behaviors. Yeah, I think what's very present at the minute is people are out of routine, so they're working from home. They've never done it before, and they're freaking out. And they're like, some people um, are kind of struggling to get into that routine of kind of when they go for to go down and get their cup of coffee or a glass of water or whatever it may be they're like oh there's the there's the the biscuit tin or whatever and they're kind of potentially grazing a little bit more so i think the halt analogy is very very applicable to what is going on now as well in that people are out of their routine it is identifying are you actually hungry or are you yeah, literally yeah. just kind of reaching for something because it's there so why not yeah, i think sorry I, I think another thing in, in relation to that is that because we are at home and we're maybe not seeing as many people as uh, we normally do, we are spending a lot more time with ourselves. And if you're someone who's not maybe good at managing their emotions and day to day, your job takes up eight or nine hours of your time, you're fairly distracted during that time, your normal routine is going to the gym for an hour and a half, it takes you an hour to get home, you have your dinner, you don't have time to sit with those emotions. Whereas now we're in a position where we're all at home at the same time, we're home for pretty much most, if not all of the day, and you have a lot more time to spend with yourself. And if you're not comfortable with the emotions that maybe come up for you, again, the whole of the stuff, if you're not comfortable with those emotions, you're spending a lot more time with them, you're spending a lot more time with yourself, and obviously that's that's going to impact your, your eating behavior. Big time. And I think one of the things now that kind of leads on to the next question in relation to a lot of us have a little bit more time on our hands potentially on the weekends or potentially if we're not as busy because a lot of people have put on put on to furlough or the Irish equivalent 
and that they're not potentially not as busy as before that now could be the potential time to build habits about kind of getting into a routine of doing a little bit of meal prep or going out for walks or ringing family and friends when potentially we didn't have enough time supposedly we told ourselves that we didn't have enough time in the day to do it but why are forming habits or decent habits should I say so difficult when it kind of comes to weight loss um, I think firstly uh, specifically with people or clients who, who are, are trying to lose weight we often find that people who I guess uh, on our end of the scale people who turn up to a psychologist or a training psychologist or a mental health service to address weight or to address nutrition will have tried a lot of times before and tried for example um, maybe a nutritionist or a dietitian before and, and it didn't work out for them um, so I think their previous habits will have been quite strong in terms of when they get to for example talk to me um, their habits at that point are often quite ingrained in them so I think one of the reasons forming new habits um, or even changing your habits in relation to weight loss is because your previous habits are so strong um, I used an analogy a while ago on my page about why it's so difficult and I'll go through it really briefly but it's, it's an explanation as to why we keep reverting to our old habits if you can imagine like a field with really really long grass and there's just one clear pathway through the middle of it and that is your old habit it's really easy to walk through that um, on that pathway to get to the other side of the field and what building a new habit is like is like forming your own pathway so you start on one side of this field and you're just chopping away at grass and it's really really difficult at the start and for a while you're quite motivated to do it but sometimes you're really tired sometimes you don't feel like doing it so you just go down the old path again and that old path is really really strong it's really easy to get to the other side of the field and when people's habits are really strong, like taking that pathway, it's very easy to revert back to them when things are really difficult. And if the new habit is really difficult, um, you're more likely to kind of maybe take the easy option. Um, I think also people underestimate how difficult that is and maybe expect changes really quickly. So managing expectations is, is really important from the start. Um, I think uh, I, I really don't like the idea of putting time frames on weight loss and I know lots of people do and for lots of people it's really helpful it's obviously a really great marketing tool but from my perspective it depends so much on what presents in front of you how long that change is going to take it's it's very difficult to say in four weeks everyone is going to get this result because for one person I guess again biased because this is the type of maybe client that presents to me for one person changing their habits might be like uprooting some deep psychological issue for somebody else it might be just more information around uh, nutrition and maybe cognitive biases so that one client um, with the cognitive biases might make progress quicker than unraveling for example a traumatic experience that relates to someone's eating behavior um, so I think managing expectations is really important from the start and realizing that behavior change if you want it to be long-term and sustainable um, takes kind of a lot of effort and maybe a lot more time than people expect Again, part of managing expectations is, is preparing to fail, so in, incorporating that into it. Um, but that would be kind of my approach to that. Um, I think people maybe don't understand how habits actually form and how to do them properly. Now, I, I'm sure lots of people who have know anything about habits will have read The Power of Habit. Um, again, it's, it's kind of a very simple way of understanding it. And um, it is, like, correct. I'm not, I'm not 
um, I'm not disagreeing with the book, but I think there's a lot more that goes into habit formation. Like, for example, I guess all of the emotional factors, all the psychological factors, all the social factors that, that dictate someone's ability to engage in a behavior. Um, I think another thing about uh, habits that people don't really understand is that your old habit will kind of always be there. The, it won't just be eliminated forever. And when your new habit is a habit, is when your old habit is kind of distinguished. Um, or um, Extinct, sorry, distinguished is not the right word. Um, extinct. So when your new habit is so strong that it overrides the old habit, that's when it's a new habit. Um, and I think maybe people don't understand that until you give the new habit enough of a chance, your old habit isn't going to just magically disappear. Um, so I think it's really important to kind of understand how habits work, understand how your previous habits um, might relate to your current behavior, and then yeah, understanding the difficulty and expecting uh, managing the expectations around, around your changes are, are quite helpful. And do you find that it is more difficult for um people who are a little bit older to almost change their habits because there is the old saying that you can't teach old dog new tricks but i think i think it depends on the level of i guess reinforcement it depends on how bad it's been it depends on how long they've been engaging in the previous habits so if you let's take like a drugs example um someone who's been on drugs for five years but is like 40 uh, versus someone who's been on drugs for 15 years who's 30 um, the person who's 30 has a lot more exposure to that kind of negative habit and I think um, for someone in relation to food again it depends the level of exposure the level of difficulty it depends on an awful lot of things there is the kind of idea that when we're older um, it's not an idea it's a fact that when we're older we've less kind of psychological flexibility we've less ability to kind of train new kind of brain pathways and new neurons so for to some extent but i believe the change is possible regardless i believe the change is possible regardless of who you are or like what age you are i think there's always something to be done um that can kind of benefit that person so i, I wouldn't write it off i wouldn't say that you know if you're older and if you've been you know had bad habits for a long time that there's nothing you can do and um, there definitely is things you can do um maybe the extent or maybe you won't get as far as you want or maybe it'll be more difficult to get there or maybe you'll have to address different difficulties but i would never say that you can't teach somebody who's who's older or has had a high level of exposure to negative habits that they can that they can't change i would always say that change is possible i'm delighted you said that i think the some of my clients are a little bit older so i think they'll be delighted to hear that uh so that's that, that I, that's why i aimed it at them um <laughs> In relation to kind of food rules and dieting, like at the minute, dieting is there's two there's two trains of thought on the dieting world at the minute. That now is not the time to diet, and now is the time to get in the best shape of your life. And there are so many rules around food that people do get lost in translation. But why are kind of black and white rules around food not great when it comes to anything really whether it's kind of diets or kind of bulking or trying to get onto a show or whatever it may be particularly to weight loss though yeah i i think black and white rules around anything isn't great genuinely um like now is the time to diet versus don't diet now to me there's no black and white in any 
in any context, whether it's in relation to weight loss, whether it's in relation to diet and nutrition, whether it's in relation to exercise, whether it's in relation to your career. I don't think there's a black and white rule that, you know, things should be this way. Things have to be this way. Um, and I think one of the good predictors of kind of mental health, physical health, um, just like general well-being, is the idea of psychological flexibility, which is, you know, we're, we're able to kind of adjust to our demands depending on what it is. So in relation to food specifically, I think maybe understanding black and white rules, um, it's the idea that, you know, having this one yes or no answer, like carbohydrates are bad would be an example, or like I can't eat after 8 p.m. because X, Y, and Z, or I'm not allowed this type of food. It's really, really rigid. It's really inflexible. And they're just ways of thinking that, aren't conducive to somebody making positive changes. Um, I think they kind of, in relation to dieting specifically and weight loss, they really set people up to kind of feel guilt or to feel embarrassed or to feel ashamed of their behaviors around their diet. Because as soon as somebody goes outside of their rules, they, they might feel bad. And again, if you feel bad, if you feel sad about it, if you feel upset, if you feel ashamed of yourself or, or like you let yourself down, they're all emotions that are going to fuel the kind of, um, I guess, the, the emotions that maybe fuel your binging behavior or your excessive restriction behavior. Or like you said earlier about exercise, somebody going out and doing exercise, even though maybe it's not good for their, their body at that time or it's not what they need right then, kind of like this compensatory behavior. So what I think black and white rules do is fuel the kind of, I know a lot of people identify with the binge eating thing, they fuel the binge eating cycle, they fuel the dieting cycle, and I just think having black and white rules around that isn't helpful. It's it's eliciting, or it's giving you the opportunity to elicit all of these emotions that potentially fuel um, what might be seen as negative behaviors. So that is the kind of restricting more heavily or compensating behaviors, or or even to the point where, where you do things that impact your life. So maybe you have a black and white rule around, I'm not going to eat after 7 p.m. Uh, because you think that or you've been told or you've learned that that maybe is, is, is bad for you or that's something you've heard or maybe when you eat after seven o'clock you feel bloated and, and you don't want to do that and it gets to the point where it's impacting your life so your friends go out at, at eight o'clock for dinner and you won't join them so you're impacting your social life or um for example maybe it's gym you you won't go out with your friends at night because you have to get up for the gym and you're compensating something that, that is significant for your life your mental well-being your physical well-being in order to do this other thing to compensate for the fact that you've gone outside your strict rules so i think those are kind of some examples that are, are why maybe that that's fueling a, a negative interaction with, with food yeah, no, I no, I, the the carbohydrate one and the food after a certain time are definitely the the two kind of things that I hear an awful lot as as a nutritionist and a coach are kind of the two things that I probably hear probably ninety percent of the time on onboarding calls is that I've been told X Y and Z, and how am I to kind of get this out of my mind or why why is this different now compared to back then. And it, it, it is interesting that it is one of those things that potentially the media have blown out of proportion, which wouldn't be the first time. Um, <laughs> I, I don't like the media, by the way, if you haven't guessed. Um, yeah, yeah, myself too. Um, so it's, it's, it's really important to almost kind of like, it's very hard to decipher who is 
the who is telling the truth and who is going to lead you down the right path when it comes to kind of like coaches and stuff like that i think that's where a lot of people because there's no regulation in the fitness industry or then it it there is no regulation which doesn't help the whole thing that there are idiots out there promoting x y and z immune boosting supplements in this time and making money out of it and going on people's emotions when they when they shouldn't um i i get that everyone has to make a living i do get that but there has to be a moral compass along the way and i think that's potentially a lot of the, the industry has a lot of work to do it's come a long way with the evidence-based side coming through a lot, a lot more with the likes of martin mcdonald them and you all that kind of stuff but it has a hell of a lot of work to do i think to kind of get to potentially the older generation who have been told x y and z for so long um and yeah it, absolutely um the kind of the last question joe um before we talk about the podcast uh, and spectrum health and stuff like that where people can kind of work with yourself is regards to how does your diet impact on your mental health and i think this is one of those things that i know when i did the fitness photo shoot the diet that i went on was fairly drastic um, I lost an awful lot of weight in f- such a short space of time, and it definitely impacted on my mental health. And I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be an advocate of that going forward. And I try not to advocate that to clients now. But how does your diet impact on your mental health? Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's it's a podcast by itself, but I'll yeah. try and go through it really briefly. Um, I was at Kimberly Wilson's book launch recently, and she put up a quote on, on one of her slides when she was when she was having a chat with us. And the quote was that nutrition is as important to mental health as it is to cardiovascular disease. I think that really hit home with me because we always associate nutrition with physical health. You eat these things because, for example, um, you know your muscles are built from protein, so you need protein to build your muscles. You need, uh, you know, you need to manage your, uh, I don't know, under, your saturated fat in order to manage your heart health. You need all these different nutrients to do physical things in your body, and we're forgetting that nutrients like what do we think that our brain runs on our nutrients um, form like the, the the functions in our brain or the structure of our brain sorry um, so to think that nutrition is, is negligible in relation to your brain even the structuring and functioning of it is is just like to me is a bit off the wall um, because the, like I said the brain and the body are quite linked so we're also eating to improve our our mental well-being i think um even some of the nutrition nutritional psychiatry evidence that's come out recently um shows that nutrition interventions can be adjunctive treatments for mental health issues meaning that for people who for example there was the smiles trial which was done by felice jack a couple of years ago um basically what they did was they got people who were in treatment for mental health issues and they helped some of them with their diet and what they found was that the people who went on a Mediterranean diet and had quite a like, diverse range of kind of fruit and veg and, you know, the Mediterranean diet pattern, um, probably better than I do. So um, <laughs> they, they put them on the Mediterranean diet and what they found was that even though they were undergoing their mental health treatments alongside that, that the people who had a nutrition intervention on the side um, recovered from their mental health issues quicker. So... I think it's really important that just for the functioning and structure of your brain, because our brain is made of nutrients, um, similar to the way that our, our muscles and our bones are all made of different nutrients, so is our brain. 
And unless it's given the right nutrients to perform its functions, it's not going to function correctly. So understanding that it's important, it's it's equally important to eat for your mind as it is to eat for your body. And I think what they know about the research right now is that the Mediterranean diet would be, I guess, one of the most positive diets in terms of your mental health. Things like your omega-3s, um, you know, lean proteins, a diverse range of fruit and vegetables, I think, is, is one of the best predictors yeah. of your gut health. Your gut health is obviously um, connected to your brain via the vagus nerve. So there are lots of different interactions between the two. And yeah, like I said, I think it's just equally important to look after your diet for your mind as it is to look after your diet for your, for your body. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think it is one massive kind of circle that if you can kind of get a full circle it, it will kind of everything will link and everything will, will hopefully work together if you know what i mean rather yep. than having a broken link and it all it has the body has to work as a link um because when one thing struggles something else has to pick up the slack unfortunately um so joe what is coming up next for you regarding the podcast and uh, where can people find out about your services with spectrum mental health um, and where can people kind of message you where can people find you on social media as well yeah I think the best place to message me if you have any questions about what I do um, is Instagram which is head first zero um, that's probably if you have any questions that's probably the best place to reach me if you want to inquire about professional services I do one to one stuff I do group stuff all in relation to behaviour change around nutrition um, you can email me at joeobrien at mentalhealth.ie like I said I work for Spectrum Mental Health um, I'm recording my own podcast tonight um, it's called the Head First Podcast it's on Spotify and Apple and all the probably all the usual ones but the best place to reach me is definitely um, Instagram I'm probably most responsive on there Joe I like I know I've been kind of pestering you a little bit to come onto the podcast so I am very <laughs> <laughs> I am very great I, when I say pester it's, it's a it's a harsh term but I've messaged Joe maybe three times um and i'm very grateful for joe giving up his, his time today and I, I i've i've got pages i've got about three pages written of notes Um, i won't be able to read it but i, I have notes written so i'm very grateful for your time joe i'm going to put any information to kind of contact joe in the write-ups so if you guys are feeling that you potentially need to kind of pop joe a message or want to have a chat with joe or book an appointment i highly i highly push you guys to do it if, if you're feeling it at all so joe thank you so much for coming on today i, I really appreciate your, your time and everything that you've said today no problem it's an absolute pleasure thanks mate if you have enjoyed the episode at all guys please do tag joe and i up on in, on your instagram the episode and leave reviews up on itunes out of spotify so guys thank you so much for listening hope you enjoy it and i will talk to you all very soon